0: Oh, if you're visiting, really just glad you're here. This is very simply a worship service. We love to just worship Jesus, who we believe is the author of all things. He is God. He is God's son. He came. He died. He rose for us uh, to ransom us, rescue us from our sins. So we, He deserves worship. He demands it. And he's worthy of it. So we do that through singing songs like we're doing right now that talk about Jesus, who he is and what he's done. We, do, we worship Jesus by also studying the Bible. We love to teach the Bible here. Uh, so they are also, by the way, we finally got our new supply of Bibles in the back. So if you don't own a Bible, uh, please take one. Uh, it's yours to keep. We want to make sure we serve you well in that way. Um, so you can also follow along as we, as we study the scriptures. And we also uh, worship Jesus by giving. Uh, thank you to the many of you that give uh, who consider this your church home, God has uh, been using your generosity in, in awesome ways to advance the kingdom. So um, you all know that we, uh, we love to uh, not just hear from me uh, on Sunday mornings, and we're trying to get better at that. It just, God is stirring among a lot of us, and so if we're not careful, it'll just become uh, Mike or someone else just kind of preaching, giving sermons, which is Beautiful, wonderful, we, we're never gonna stop doing that, but we also want you to know that hey, God's at work around you, God's at work in. Brothers and sisters who are sitting right next to you, they're, they're struggling with the same things, I'm struggling with the same things, we're in this fight together. Um, and so we want you to, as often as we can, just hear about the ways that God is just stirring in people. So I asked Jordan, Jordan, why don't you come on up here. God's been uh, working in Jordan in the area of prayer. And, and I've loved just hearing from him because I, uh, I stink at prayer. So um, it was such a blessing to hear the ways God was kind of growing him in that way and shaping him in that way. And uh, I just said, hey, could you just, just share a few minutes about how God is, is working in your life and, and what he's doing? So uh, Jordan, you can take as long as you want. Uh, half hour is good. Amen. So, yeah, raise it up. Oh, you really are? Oh, nice. Oh, he wasn't joking. Okay. Good. Here you go, bro. Thanks. Oh, I don't even have you ready.
1: Buddy. It's really good to be here. Um, and I was just thinking every week, just being here with you all, um, we are very blessed people, marked with grace. No, um, so just it's it's an honor to be here before you, being able to sing with you, listen to God's word with you, and uh, most of all, just being able to share with you right now. So thank you. Um, Mike asked me to just share a little bit as he just told you on prayer, um, and I want to do that this morning. Actually, just sharing two verses and a quote. So and. I think that'll just be able to encapsulate what has been going on in my mind the past couple weeks and months, honestly. Um, and if you will bear with me, I, wrote, I started writing down all my thoughts, and I think just for brevity's sake and clarity's sake, it'll be easier if I kind of read. So I'll try to look at you guys maybe once or twice to keep eye contact, make sure you're still there. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to read what I have just so I'm not going and just talking and I actually know what I'm going to say. So bear with me there. The first verse, um, we've been in Philippians, and Th- Philippians three eight. so I just want to read this verse to you guys, remind us of what it says. It's very famous, you'll, re- you'll recognize it, but it says this, Philippians 3.8, indeed I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For this sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Whoop. So this verse—it's hard to preach on a podium, you know. See, yeah, I do more than you think. <laughs> you <know.
0: laughs>
1: so this verse helps start, like, jumpstart some of the thinking I had. Um, Pastor Mike preached this a couple weeks ago, uh, a few Sundays ago. Um, I remember him preaching this, and it struck my mind. Um, we see Paul counting up and evaluating his life, and re—and just counting up everything, and then putting it against knowing Christ, and he and he called it um, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. His main point being, knowing God is better than anything and everything else we can ever attain, know, or have. Um, that statement is a lot easier said with words rather than lived out with actions. It's a lot easier to say, I have Christ, I, he's better than everything, and then when our lives materialize, then we see what we actually love, what we actually are entertained by. Um, so that was the first verse that jump-started and I, I've been reading a couple old Christians. I started reading just some autobiographies, just lives of other old Christians, and uh, it's a little depressing. Um, but what I saw in these men um, was that they knew God. These, these men were marked with a knowledge of God. They knew him. Um, they knew him in such tangible and real ways that in my mind, I couldn't grasp the lives they lived. I couldn't. I honestly am struggling to think they're human. Sometimes it just doesn't seem, it just seems so foreign. My life doesn't make sense against theirs. Although a lot of these men are different in many ways, they all had something in common, and that thing was they were men who prayed to a God that they knew. Um, they were men, who, men of prayer who enjoyed deep and sweet communion with God, and it was continually, it was a lot, and you just knew you could tell their relationship with God was, was deep. Um, the scary fact in, in reading these men and looking at their lives was I inevitably looked at mine, and my life and my prayer life, my communion with God, sometimes didn't even seem like I had it compared to these men. There was a drastic contrast between. Um, so my question to that observation was why? Why did they pursue God in such a more drastic way than I than I do? Um, so that was my question. The second verse that helped me, my thinking, was Jeremiah 9, 24. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it. Um, I have it marked here so I don't have to look around. Jeremiah nine twenty four. But lem, let him who boasts boast in this: that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight," declares the Lord. Um, again, we see knowing God is the only thing worth boasting about. We see the Bible preaching that knowing God is better than anything else. That's the only thing worth. In um, biblically speaking. Anything else is, is just embarrassing to boast about. It's just Christ. Um, so Jeremiah also takes an additional, additional little angle and uses these words of God, for in these things I delight. That phrase stood out to me. Um, I asked the question, do I know what God delights in? Do we as a church know what God delights in? What does God, what is God angry about? What is God, what is, what is God to fight for? What does God raise up? What does he bring down? What does God hate? What does God love? Do we know these things? Um, many times we say we know God or we want to know God and then I've realized myself the very next hour I go out and I can't even identify things that God either hates or that God loves or that he rejoices in or delights in or that he just abhors. I can't, it's just crazy that I say this but then I can't, I can't figure out what exactly he's, he's delighting in. Um, so I ask the question, can we can I identify his active mercy and grace in our daily lives. Can I say, this is God's mercy acting. This is God's discipline towards me. Um, can I pick those things out? So do we know God? Do we know what he's like? Do we even care? Um, so I observe my life and I see how easily distracted I am and how lazy, undisciplined I am, how ignorantly satisfied I've become with just stupid things, for instance, checking my email for the 400th time in the day, refreshing it. Um, checking my phone just habitually and just seeing what message wasn't there three minutes ago. Uh, even just waking up, first thing I go to an ESPN, who scored a 40.9 basketball? These are things that just, that's what, that's what I've become satisfied. It has, and I wrote, how, is this what I have settled on in life? Is this what I've been satisfied with and just been content with? Um, so C.S. Lewis has this quote. Mike used this a while back in another sermon series. You, it's, you might have heard it, but I think it basically drives home the point I want to make. Um, he said, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea, at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. Contrasting what we're doing versus infinite joy. Um, How true is that of my life? Is this true of your life? Are we satisfied with the mud pies when we're ignorantly ignorant of the infinite joy that is is had with communion with God, with praying with God? Mm -hmm. So in my little closing thing, I said, Christians, Christ came to kill and overcome those weak desires. He has placed his spirit in you, which empowers you and enables you to obey and to seek him. I am not asking you to find the strength inside of you to start another prayer life, another journal, another this, that. To find that strength, it's impossible. That would be an impossible task to ask you. I am asking you to go back to the cross. Examine what is blocking your view of its beauty and worth and to exhaust yourself in the only pursuit worth pursuing, the pursuit of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. Will Cab be known as a church who is content with playing with mud pies or will we be found running after infinite joy only found in Christ? Throw away everything that hinders, brothers and sisters. Get on your knees and pray to the living God and find him. He will be found by you. So, guys, that's – I've been looking at my life, examining these other men's lives. They knew God, they sought God, and I've been seeking my own life. I am satisfied with, with things, that trinkets that will perish, that will fade, that don't last. I've lost sight of the cross. That's, that's what happens. I lose sight of Jesus Christ. He's the infinite joy. And that has been driving me. The, I, could, I could be the most successful, the most efficient man in the world, business, job, anything, and have nothing if I don't know, know Christ. That's what the Bible's saying. So, my encouragement, my push to you is examine yourself. Examine yourself. Look at those things that are hindering your communion with God, stopping you from praying, and then, and then just pray. Practice at it. It's, we all stink at it. Pastor Mike said that, I, I stink at it. I'm not up here saying I'm a great prayer. We all say that. Prayer doesn't happen by you conjuring it up. Prayer just happens by examining your life. It's not the, it's not the too strong of desires, it's the weak desires. So, so go to Christ, ask him to increase your desire for, for communion with him. And, and I'm, it's a work in progress and I wanna be known as a church that communes with God, that knows God, that knows our God, that can say that is, that is God. That's what he hates, that's what he loves. Let's go towards what he loves, let's, let's oppose what he hates. And I want to be a church that joins together in that and is unified in that. So that's, that's all I have. Um, I've been very blessed by Philippians and, and how Mike is preaching through it. Um, it's, it's so great listening to every person that comes on how, what something is different the Lord is working on. We've read Philippians how many times in our lives, how many times throughout the centuries, and yet we still have new things that the Lord is, the Lord is teaching us individually and corporately. Um, it's living and active, and I just can't wait to hear what Mike is going to preach today. So thank you for listening. That's, that's all I got.
0: Amen. Amen. Thanks, Jordan. Praise God for how he's at work, and uh, I really feel foolish preaching after that. Uh, just solid. I, I just, I would commend to you. I know George Mueller, his autobiography is one of the ones that Jordan read. Actually, Jordan gave it to me as a Christmas gift. And uh, it's really been a blessing to kind of walk through that. Another one, Hudson Taylor's Spiritual Secret. Uh, just, man, if there's another book, then I gave him that one, kind of like, hey, you know, to zing one back. Uh, he made me suffer through George Mueller, so I'm going to make him suffer through Hudson Taylor. Uh, but that one's really good. Really great book, too, to just just seeing these men's life of prayer and then seeing uh, the Bible and what the text says about it and seeing it be real in these men is just profound. So uh, thank you, Jordan. Why don't, why don't we, uh, what better thing to do than pray uh, before we dive into Philippians 4. Uh, this morning, so let's ask Him, God. Thank you for the what you're doing here, uh, God. Thank you that you are so kind to us, God. Thank you that you take imperfect people and make them righteous, not just with good deeds of righteousness, but the very righteousness that is you. God, thank you that we have been hidden in Christ. If we have repented and turned from our sin and trusted in you alone, by faith alone. God, thank you for just the ways that you use the miracle that is your written word to speak, encourage, sharpen, rebuke, challenge. God, I pray that you would, uh, God, speak to us in a a very difficult topic this morning of anxiety, fear. How do we rejoice when our whole life is unhinged? Uh, God, speak clearly. Help us to see what you have to say about these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Philippians chapter 4. If you have a Bible, grab it. Go there. Uh, Philippians chapter 4. We're going to go verse 2 to 7. We're going to kind of stop right before he gets to kind of the mental aspect of the fruit of the Christian. And um, if you are just dropping in or you haven't been here, let me just catch you up to speed really quick. Paul is riding to this church in Philippi. This church was a church he started with three other guys, Timothy, Silas, and Luke. And they were bringing the gospel from Asia to Europe. They go across the Aegean Sea. They, They take a stop in Troas. And then they get up to northern Greece. They meet these different people who never would have done life together, Lydia, a wealthy businesswoman, a slave girl who was demon possessed, and this jailer, after they are thrown in prison, the jailer gets saved. All three of these people become united brothers and sisters in Christ, and they start birthing this church, and God starts adding to this church, and you see this just really affectionate plea from Paul consistently in this letter, and I keep saying that Paul wants to drive the Philippian hearts and our hearts as well into one thing. Okay? And that is that Christ is all things. It's everything that Jordan was just sharing, that when you have Christ, you have everything. If you get everything outside of him and don't get him, you haven't won anything. Okay? You're the poorest man on the planet. Okay? Yet if you seem materially like the poorest man on the planet, yet you have Christ. You're the richest man in the universe because you have all that God has. And so here he's going to get into what really is, I think, the fruits of the maturing man or woman. So, so here's what we saw. We saw the why Okay, here's why we press into Christ, here's why we pursue him, here's why we want to know him, why? Because his worth is surpassing. Like, like nothing compares to him, okay? And then he showed us how we do that, how we push headlong by forgetting what's behind and not just forgetting aimlessly, not just forgetting God's works or his deeds. We want to remember those things. We forget whatever robs us or hinders us from our present pursuit of him. And then we looked at how we pursue him, how we look to godly examples, how we're aware of people whose God is their belly, where it's just selfish wants. And then we saw how we actually remember that our citizenship isn't here. Like We're not home yet, so we shouldn't feel satisfied here. We should be satisfied with what is outside of here, which is him, and then we remember that we're awaiting a savior. There's a second advent coming. We're going to all want a champion because all of our narcissism, all of our idolatry, all of the wicked thoughts we've had, we're all going to be exposed on the day of judgment. We're going to want someone to come in and say, hey, I paid for that, and he's going to say, I did, if you're his, if you've trusted in Christ. So so here's now where he's going to show you, okay, that's the substance Okay, chapter 4 is, okay, now here's what kind of the life will begin to look like if you're pushing headlong into him, okay, and you're actually practicing those things. So we learned about why we should and how we should. Now here is, how does that kind of work out itself in the day-to-day Christian life? And let me just uh, say this. This is what you're going to see this morning, okay? If if you don't get anything else, this is what Paul's going to show us, is that our understanding of the return of Christ and his sovereign rule and reign over all things will kindle up joy and kill anxiety, okay? So so if you leave here with with nothing else in your brain, that's what you're going to remember is that remembering that we're awaiting a Savior, that the Lord is at hand, that there is a a one coming. We're not home yet. He's coming back for his kids. He's going to rescue us fully. We're in the already not yet phase. Okay, if you can remember that, that's going to actually help also that, that tied into that inextricably is that he is sovereignly ruling and reigning over everything. So if you get that, then what that's going to do is slowly bubble up rejoicing, and as you rejoice, it's going to kill anxiety and fear and give you peace, okay? So uh, let's just pick up in verse 2, and you're going to see a little bit what appears to be kind of a, a random text uh, uh, kind of inserted in here, where Paul kind of takes a pit stop real quick to address uh, something that never happens in the church where two women are fighting. Okay, so here's what we see. Uh, some of you, yeah, understand that. Okay, so verse 2, good. It's, it's in the Bible. So Paul's going to talk about it. Here's what he says in verse 2. I entreat you, euodia and I entreat Zentiki to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Okay, so, so Paul is just addressing the situation where there are two women, they're not getting along, there's a disagreement, and we know this isn't like some big doctrinal heretical disagreement or we, they'd probably be removed from the church. We know that they're church members. They've labored with Paul. He's are asking other church members, hey, come alongside him and help him just kind of figure this thing out so it doesn't get bigger. Okay, let's resolve this thing. Okay, Now, now here, here's what's weird about the placement of this text. Like, Paul's been talking about this, this grand Christology, this grand doctrine, right? I mean, he's, he's been talking in chapter two about how God actually humbled himself, emptied himself, became obedient even to the point of the cross, how he, he became nothing for us, right? We should imitate that. And Then he gets into the process of what that looks like. He says, hey, there's these false teachers in verse three. Hey, watch out for them. Don't listen to their bad doctrine. Don't listen to what they say. They're not preaching grace alone. They're preaching works too. And then all of a sudden he stops and he goes, hey, these women are fighting. Can you help them? It's like, can you, can you say, hey, can you figure it out? get unified, okay, okay, here, don't don't just breeze over this, because Paul's getting at something really important, it's bad doctrine doesn't just ruin the church, disunity equally damages the church as heretical doctrine, like, it's not like we got to really be on guard against bad doctrine, that's the real enemy, but discord and dissension, no, he's saying this is just as bad. This can eat away. So if we don't resolve it now, it's going to just undermine everything I've just talked about. Now, now, isn't it just consistent with the letter of Philippians, right? Chapter 1, verse 27, what does he say? Strive by side with one mind, with one heart for the faith of the gospel. What's he doing there? He's pleading for unity. What does he do in chapter 2? In chapter 2, he gets into, hey, can you not consider yourself more important than everybody else? Can you be humble and lowly and not conceited? Right, right? By looking to Jesus and seeing his humility, can, can you do that? Can you count others more significant than yourself? What's he doing there? He's crying out for unity. What does he do? Later in chapter two, he goes, Hey, don't grumble and complain. Right? Don't bicker. I mean, just let's do this thing together. We have one mind, just like what Jordan was, was asking God for. I love that. That was beautiful. This is the same thing Paul's been asking of. Hey, we want to do this together with a mind that's unified, that's understanding what we're doing together. Satan would love to come in and just cause dissension and discord. And so, Paul's just simply kind of stopping for a moment and just addressing a situation, saying, hey, let, let's go, let's, let's figure that out, okay? Let's take care of that. Okay, let's not, let, let that hinder the work of the gospel. If you've got little tips, just deal with it. And interesting that he says, though, how their names are in the book of life. See that? Now, what's the book of life? The book of life is an actual register that God keeps for all the redeemed. Real quick, have you ever thought about that? Like, if you're in Christ, your name is written in the book of life right now? That's insane. And, 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 and if you read Daniel 12, Malachi 3, those are places it talks about this. You'll see this consistent in the New Testament. There's actually a part in the New Testament where Jesus sends out the disciples, right? And what happens? They all come back rejoicing because they cast out demons, do all these great works. And what does Jesus say? Hey, don't rejoice because demons listen to you. Rejoice because your names are written in heaven, right? So, and now this is what's so interesting is what's he going to say in the next verse? He's going to talk about rejoicing, right? So you're going to see in some way that rejoicing is tied to you knowing that your name is written in the book of life. When was the last time you rejoiced in that? Like that's unchanging. Like your situations, your circumstances are always up and down, but your name being written in the book of life is is permanent. When God writes in a name, it doesn't get erased, Right? So this is all Philippians 1.6 that he will continue the work that he started in you to the day of Christ Jesus. He will bring that to completion. So we see that he's basically saying, hey, you're all on the same team. Your names are written in the book of life. So don't, don't let this disagreement dismantle what we're doing, what this church is doing. You guys are together in this. You're not opposed to each other. You're for the same thing. This is you know what I love about this letter? You know, Paul, we always say write circularly. Well, This is all linked back to pride, right? I mean, why do we bicker? Why do we have disagreement? Why can't they resolve this? Well, because someone is more concerned about their own interests than the interests of the other. Or someone's more prideful in winning their argument than just laying down their rights, right? So you see all this coming together. So he, he addresses that, and then he gets into really the meat of what he wants to say. And he commands an idea that is not difficult to say but really difficult to do. Okay, this is that really classic churchy idea, okay, that, that, that we all hear about and talk about, but the outworkings of it are extremely difficult. Look at what he says in verse four. Rejoice in the Lord when? Always. You, God can't command me to rejoice always, right? He, then he says, I love it, I'm gonna say it again, right? Rejoice, Okay, this, this, is, this is, now understand, this isn't the imperative. This is a command. Now, now, we think that's too happy to be a command, right? When you think a command, you're going, okay, don't kill anyone. Oh, okay, like I won't kill anyone, right? He, he can't command me to do something happy, right? So, so this is why this text used to bug me. It used to just bug me. What do you, God can't command me to rejoice always, and this is just amazing, amazing text where he says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. And here's another thing I notice: is you don't see any other command in Scripture written like this. Like he doesn't say, don't murder anyone. I'm going to say it again. Don't murder anyone. Right? Like he doesn't do that. Like this is, this is the only place you see, hey, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, hey, I'm going to say it again. Rejoice. You, you know, so, so there's something about rejoicing that Paul thinks is really important. That God thinks is really important that he inspired Paul to write it. Okay, so he's, he's laying before us this idea that, that clearly matters. So he says, rejoice in the Lord when always. Okay, so the natural question is, well, how do I rejoice when my whole life is just unhinged? Like, like how do I rejoice when there's no reason to rejoice? Because he just said rejoice always. That there's no room for you to speculate the areas or pockets when you shouldn't rejoice. Like he doesn't leave room for that. So, so what is that? Look, man, I need help with that, right? If you're like me, I'm going, I, I need help understanding how do I rejoice always? Because if you've lived life long enough, you know life changes within seconds, right? Life is just cruising along and then you lose a loved one, someone betrays you, your spouse walks out on you. You fill in the blank, right? Right? Within seconds, right? It, it's weird. It's usually not subtle. Usually the, the curveballs in life just happen like in an instant. When you're not expecting. So, so how do I rejoice in that? Well, thankfully he, thank goodness God gives us help. Verse 5, he says, let your reasonable bit, reasonableness be known to everyone. Hey, now I really need help. So, Because so, when, when, when those things go nuts in my life, I'm not a reasonable person, right? I fly off the handle, right? So hold on, he's saying I not only have to rejoice, but my reasonableness, right, my, my calmness, my steadfastness should be seen to everyone. It's this maturity that he's talking about that should be identified over time in the life of the believer. But how, how in the world is this produced in you? How how can we be seen as a reasonable person who rejoices always? He's he's showing just these these fruits, and he shows us the basis of rejoicing always and being a reasonable person. The Lord is at hand. Okay, here are the two ideas that he's alluding to. One is the return of Christ. Okay, he's getting right back to what he said in verse twenty of chapter three, just four verses ago. What did he say? Your citizenship isn't here. You're awaiting a savior. He's reminding them of the imminence of Christ's return. The Lord's at hand. He's coming back. And, and, and tied into that is this idea of his sovereign rule and reign of all things. He's at hand, he's in control, he's returning again to make all things right, nothing's going to escape him, okay, so, so these are the two realities where, he, where he's bringing our eyes, okay, so if you're in a moment of not feeling like rejoicing or deep anxiety, we're going, to, we're going to see it later how it rolls right into anxiety, or you're not a reasonable person, you're always just quick to fly off the handle and get angry, or, okay, here's the remedy for that. As you're pushing into Jesus, okay, here's the things we need to see. Here's the things we need to remember. Now, I, I thought about a text in Matthew 25. I don't know if you guys are familiar with Matthew 25. It's a sheep and goat judgment, and a, not, not a popular one that people like to read, but it's where Jesus returns in all his glory, and, and he separates the sheep from the goats, right? He looks on his left, and he goes, okay, well, you just lived for the idolatry of your own heart. You didn't care about me. You didn't feed me. You didn't give me drink. You didn't give me water. Your, your life was invested in you, so you're going to go to eternal fire, Right? Not, not happy, not, not a cheery thing. And then he looks over here and goes, okay, well, these are the sheep. These are mine. These are the ones who made much of me. You, you, you gave your life for me. It's, a, it's really, I think, more of a passage of idolatrous heart than you doing acts of social justice. But that's for another time. So, so here what we see is someone who's pressing in to sing, hey, I made much of you. I saw when you were hungry. I saw when you were thirsty. I wanted to do what you wanted, not what I wanted. He goes, man, welcome to paradise. You're mine. You're my son. You're my daughter. And here's what he says in verse 31 at the beginning of this, this judgment. He says this in verse 31, when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Have you ever read scenes in scripture and just stopped to picture them, like not VBS, not 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 what you grew up in Sunday school, just reading stories, but have you actually stopped to consider what some of these things might look like? Because it, it's interesting to me. We get you know you know when you watch like a really good movie and the, the ending's coming, and how you're just, there's this anticipation for it, right? You just can't wait. You're on the edge of your seat. There's almost this little anxiousness in, in your soul. You're just, man, I can't wait to see all this this happens. There's the climax of the whole movie. You're just, you're just waiting for it. Well, often we talk about the return of Christ. Like, Yeah, he's gonna return someday, right? Okay, so, so hold on a second. It says when Jesus comes in all his glory, just stop there. Right, okay, okay, nothing else matters in that moment. Like he's returning in all his glory. He's not returning like he first came in the form of an infant. He's coming in all of his glory and he says he's not only returning in all of his glory, he's coming with all of his angels. Okay, if you go to Revelation 5, there's a scene that depicts God, Jesus with his angels and it says 10,000 times 10,000, okay? That's 100 million Try. Come on, you've never seen a hundred million anything in your life, right? I mean, a hundred million angels. Okay, so so just seriously try to consider this right now. He is coming out of heaven in all his glory with a hundred million angels. What are you thinking about? I mean my shoes, they look a little dirty. I need to buy some new shoes. I mean, right? I mean, what, what's going on? Man, that 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 person betrayed me. That no, you you are just fixed upon that. There, nothing else matters, right? Your, your preference doesn't matter. How you, your, your vocation really doesn't matter in the sense of whether you were happy or sad. Yeah, did you use your, your vocation for the glory of God, but man, what you were doing in that moment, all eyes are on him. He is in all his glory. He's descending with all of his angels. Then he sits on a throne, and then he starts gathering those that are his and those who are not his, And in that moment, it says he looks at those of us who are in Christ, who have repented of our sin, who have trusted him and said, I'm going to deny myself and follow him as my Lord and Savior. And he goes, man, that's my son. That's my daughter. I mean, you're mine. Dad's back for you. We're going home. I mean, it's no wonder Paul's saying, you want to rejoice in something? Rejoice in that. This gives you reason to rejoice. That everything will be made right. That God is just over all things. That the real story is going to end this way. Like we, we have that. It's the same idea last week of Philippians 3 verse 20. So when he returns, it doesn't matter how rich or poor you were. doesn't matter how famous you were. Whether you were a celebrity or not a celebrity. All that matters is are you his? Are you his? Does he know you? What a what an amazing thought and, and Paul just says rejoice in that the Lord is at hand that gives us reasonableness when people do something you hold on this hurts i know how it ends i know god is the the one who avenges he's the justifier right nothing goes out from his sight the the other link to this is that the Lord is at hand, God is returning, is that when he returns, he's going to remind everyone of what has always been, which is he is sovereignly in charge of everything. So I want to give us just a few texts just to stare at for a minute, okay? Colossians 1.16, they're on the screen for you. Just, 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 let's stare at these and this will lead us into the next part, okay? Colossians 1.16, for by him, Jesus, all things were created, okay, how many things? All things. Okay, just so you know, there's not a spot that God's not there. Okay? All things. He made everything, heaven and earth. Okay, so, so the micro and the macro, he made everything. Visible and invisible, whether throne or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for who? Him. Everything that's made. Okay? And in him, All things hold together. Every molecule, every DNA strand in your body, every form of H2O, every type of thing in the air that creates oxygen for you, it's held together by him. Powerful, right? Sovereign control, sovereign rule. Psalm one fifteen our God is in heaven, he does what whatever he wants, whatever he wants that includes whatever he wants for our life does whatever he pleases, like no one judges God here you 're going to see more of this right ephesians one eleven he works what all things according to the counsel of what Mike reads perfect well right jesse 's Sarah no no, no, according to his perfect will. He does everything, everything that happens in your life. Like, nothing's random. Nothing's a mistake. Like, the God of the universe is not a God who shows up late to hurt in your life and goes, man, I can't believe that just happened. I mean, how do I fix this? Like, that's not the God of the Bible. You've you got to understand who he is. He's a God who's in it, who's a part of it, who's in control of it, who has a, a perfect will that goes beyond our brain, our finite little puny brain. The infinite God of the always been universe says, "This is my will. I decree it to happen. I'm going to orchestrate it all. You are involved and caught up in that. What amazing, what amazing grace! Right? Look at Romans 11. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom of knowledge of God. We can't even His knowledge. I, I can't. I can't handle it. You can't handle it. It's deep. The depth is so deep. You'll never get to the bottom." of his ways. How unsearchable are his judgments and inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor, right? When, when, when shipwrecks happen in our life, no one can counsel him and say, well, well, God, this should have happened instead or this goes, no, no. Look at what it, he ends with. Well, who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Often, in sorrow and rejoicing, we love to barter with God. Right? But, but God, I've been, I've been reading my Bible for two years. How are you going to let this happen to me? I've been, I've been giving faithfully to the church. Why, why, why are you going to take funds from me? Really? He owns it. Like, it's his money. You just gave back what was his. Right? Like, like, you don't have anything to barter with. There's nothing you come to the table with and go, well, can, I, can I maybe change your mind in this way with this thing? For from him and through him and to him, again, are all things. Guys, this is massive, beautiful sovereignty. Reign and rule in all things. Now listen, this is, the fact that he reigns over all situations, over all times, over all things over all peoples, over all details, is deeply necessary for your joy and your peace. It's necessary, okay? This is why, notice, who are you rejoicing in? In the Lord, okay? So, so the object of you rejoicing is in him, right? You're not rejoicing in your circumstance, Okay, you're not rejoicing in your pain that you feel. Like, that's morbid and outside the Bible. Okay, these people that say we should be just laughing in spirit hands as we're getting flogged. Okay, you see that nowhere, that, that's twisted and messed up. Okay, that's not, not in the scriptures. Okay, we're going to talk about what rejoicing really means. I mean, we see that even in Jesus. When he was getting whipped and beaten, was he just joyfully shouting out praise? There was deep suffering, but a hopefulness in God's sovereign rule over what was happening. That enabled him to be okay with that, to rejo- rejoice in that, to have a, a deep sense of God, you're in this, you're active in this, right? You haven't abandoned me, right? So we're rejoicing in the Lord. Okay, our standing with Him is central to your joy or joylessness. Your standing with him, rejoicing in him, is central to you having peace or anxiety. Central to it, okay? To rejoicing in the Lord. So this is amazing. He says, rejoice in the Lord. So we rejoice because God eternally loves us. Right? We rejoice because your hope is in the one who controls it all. It's not in you. It's in the one who's got sovereign rule over all things. There's not a spot. He's not there. So let me just give you one little thing that helps me. When I feel moments of not rejoicing, when I feel minutes of, of pain, of hurt, here, here's one little thing that, that helps me. It's remembering, Mike, God does not owe you anything. Linger there. God does not owe you anything. In fact, in His kindness and grace, He's already provided you with the only thing that is necessary or even helpful or even a remedy for that moment, which is Himself. And we're saying You're not enough. I need something else. You don't really have sovereign control. You're not really big enough. Your judgments aren't really wise enough. So you get frustrated and you get angry and you get unreasonable and you get anxiety and you lack joy. And I, I just, this is so important for me to remember God does not owe me anything. I mean, There is nothing, I mean, Romans 11 is clear. You can't repay him with anything. So every moment of laughter, every meal that's set before you on the table, every breath you take in your lungs is a gift. I rejoice in that. He doesn't owe me anything, yet he gave me it all. I mean, we got to drive our hearts. This is not easy. This is where we need to begin to drive our hearts. This is where Paul's driving our hearts. Because he knows this is the answer for this. And here, like I said, let me just be, be clear of what rejoicing is, okay? Rejoicing is not like spirit hands. I don't know what else to say, right? Just this like, you're always happy, God's awesome, you know, my life is terrible, but I'm always so happy. Okay, that, that's not rejoicing. Rejoicing is he's active in this. In that moment of distress. God help me. I trust you. My heart's failing. But, but I know you're good. I know you're in control. I know you have me. Right? Even though my flesh may fail me. You're my portion. Right? It's, this, it's, the, it's, it's the posture of your heart. And I think we see that in Jesus rejoicing in the garden, rejoicing as he's being whipped and as he's taking on the wrath of God for all our sin. It's not this spirit hands, everything's happy, but there's a a, he's in this. There's hope. God's not out of control. God's not outside of this. God is in this. And he's in control of it. And he wants it. And I don't know why. I can't see why. But I only have two reasons. Default to my finite wisdom or his sovereign rule. I mean, which are you going to pick? And I'll tell you which one leads to discouragement, joylessness, anxiety, fear. Your finite thoughts and desires and and opinions about what should be and what shouldn't be. But he's offered us a rock solid place to land. This This is a gift that we receive, that the God of the universe is not showing up later out of control. It's at the end of the day, regardless of how it ends, guys. You didn't rescue me to destroy me. Like you rescued me to help me, to free me, to give life to me. That's why he rescued us. He didn't rescue you so that he could just inflict pain on you. And we know, right, according to the scriptures that if you're in Christ, you're not under wrath, you're under mercy. Okay, well that's big. Because that means every moment of pain and hurt is actually a gift. We Remember, this is God actually, in his kindness, reminding me, preparing me last week that I don't belong here. There's a a Savior returning. The Lord is at hand. He's going to make it all right for me. He's preparing that day so that, man, when that happens, there will be greatest possible joy in my soul when I see the new Jerusalem. Through him allowing the, the difficulties and things that happen in our life. And so Paul says we can rejoice because he's at hand, because he's coming back, because you're awaiting a risen Savior, not one who's dead. And then this is powerful, the next question. Okay, what do I do with the anxieties then? Okay, so he covers our joy, right, because he's at hand. Then, what do I do when the pressures of the world press into me so much so that I just, I can't handle it anymore? How, how do I deal with that? What happens when I forget God is in control and that he's sovereign? What, what happens when that, when that, those, those moments, and here's what he says. Verse 6, what happens when we forget the Lord is at hand? Don't be anxious about anything. Why? what he just said there's no place that God isn't there's nothing that's out of his fingertips so 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 don't be anxious listen here's something I think we got to get out of our heads and something we got to get into our heads I think you got to get out of your head this understanding that God solely knows the past present and future okay is that true about him absolutely he's omniscient right? But he's also omnipresent, which goes beyond him just knowing the past, present, and future. He's outside of time. He actually stands in the future. Like, like this is a huge distinction. So get out of your head that he just knows the past, present, and future, and get in your mind that he stands outside of time and reigns and rules even outside of what is the past, present, and future. I know, I know you're, <laughs> my mind got like, the synapses were crossing this week because I was trying to like even just consider that, right? But I mean, that, that, that is the God of the Bible. Like he's not just like us where, okay, I know he knows the past. He knows, he knows what's gonna happen. No, he's outside of that. Like he's outside of time. What kind of control is that? What type of reign is that? What type of rule is that? Full, the fullest, right? He made time. He didn't get born into time. Now that one, that your your mind will just go bonkers. So let's let's keep moving though. So so he stands outside of time and he reigns over it and he rules over it perfectly, sovereignly, without question, without mm, getting confused or mixed up or never. Right. So again, this is a command. Don't be anxious. Is God allowed to command us to not be anxious? Think about this. What if you woke up tomorrow and the rest of your life you were never anxious? Man, how good would your life be, right? I mean, seriously. Can you imagine how invigorating and joy-filled your life would be? If we woke up and the rest of our existence, we were never anxious? We We never worried? Think about the type of person you'd be. Happy, right? Joyful, right? And if for some reason we look at this and go, well, yeah, that would be nice. Yeah, that would be nice, but I mean, that's not possible. No, it's not possible pre-glorification, but it's possible to grow in that and have much more frequent days of rejoicing and steadfastness and reasonableness and less anxiety. He's He's gonna show us that, and it's interesting because Just like the last command, we think, well, God can't expect me not to worry. Right? But how come you don't say to any of his other commands, I mean, he doesn't really expect me to go my whole life not killing anybody. Right? But with this one, it's like, well, he can't really expect me not to worry. He can because he's provided reason not to. He's, he's given you the fruit of the spirit and the fruits of that spirit when he indwells you is what? Peace, patience, kindness, joy. Right? Okay, so, so, so here's what he's showing us is that every command that God gives is never to take from you, it's always to give greater life. Every command, not just the ones that seem like bad sins. So he actually is commanding you to rejoice always. He's commanding you to not be anxious. Why? Because it's gonna lead to deeper life. It's going to lead to a happier life, a more joy-filled life. And he goes, hey, you can do that. I mean, God's looking down going, man, I don't want to see my kids always anxious like, like their dad has it not in control. I mean, think about it, right? When you were growing up in your house, I mean, I mean, just the little things, right? I mean, I, I don't know. I was five years old and I never thought, I don't know, is dad going to pay the electric bill? Like, is he gonna? Is that going to happen? Like, I, I never thought about that. I was never anxious about that. And God in heaven's going, man, I want to see my kids just joyful, rejoicing, enjoying my sovereign rule and reign that have God taken care of. You don't need to be anxious or think that dad's missing that spot or that he, that he messed up or he forgot you know what I mean like that's the picture here is man I'm, I'm actually giving you this command to lead you into sweeter life as you press headlong into me who is the source of peace and joy and so how does the man or woman of God handle anxiety don't be anxious but in everything by prayer and supplication present your request to God with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to God. And then here's the effect. The peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Okay, so the discipline we combat anxiety with is prayer. Praise God for the province of Jordan's sharing and how he led us well into, okay, this is what we want to do. We want to grow in our heart for prayer, intimacy with God, remembering his rule and reign. We want to commune with him. We want to know him. Okay, as I combat my anxiety with prayer, what type of prayer is it? Supplication. What supplication? Help me. Help me. It's a cry for help. Now here's what's awesome. Paul loves to write in circular ways, right? We've said that. You can see it in the small text, even in the whole text of books. Do you see this idea of humility coming back Again, to hear the lowly, the humble, I'm not in control, I need help, I'm not proud. Like when I'm anxious, I'm not not actually in my pride gonna try to control it and carry it. I'm gonna be humble and lowly and say, okay, well, I can't do it. I'm submitted to his sovereign rule and reign. Okay, he's the big deal, I'm not the big deal, so I'm actually gonna go to him. That's a humble thing to do. That's a lowly thing to do. And I'm going to present my request to him. And here's what's amazing is, is, is in that he says, let there be thanksgiving. So, so here's what God says. Hey, when you're anxious, I just want you to do one simple thing. Talk to me about it. Just talk to me about it. And then hand it over. Trust my sovereign rule and reign. Remember I'm coming back. Remember, all's gonna be made right. And then rejoice, give thanksgiving in that, and then move on. And the peace of God's gonna guard you. Now, sounds pretty, right? But but here, we're gonna dig just for a minute. Here's here's what here's what he's here's part of what he's saying. The thanksgiving is not just when your prayers end up favorable. Your thanksgiving is even when they go the other way. God, remove this thorn from me. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave it there a little bit. You trust me? Trust me that that's welling up in you a greater preparation and longing for your citizenship in heaven and a return of mine. And increasing joy and in reminding you of how out of control you are and how control I am. And so what was really convicting to me is when I read this, if you're like me, I'm like, okay, God says when you're anxious, Mike, just talk to me about it. And then, okay, hand it over, trust me, give thanks, and then move on. Here's what I normally do, okay? I labor in prayer about something, and I worry more after I pray. I don't know if you're like me, right? So so I'll, I'll pray, and be like, all right, God, you got it. You're sovereign ruler and reiner. And then I'll be like, mm. Two minutes went by. Hey, God, you hear me? Like, I just, it's been two minutes, right? It's been 60 seconds. It's been 90 seconds. It's been two days. It's been three weeks. It's been a month, right? Okay, uh, I, did you hear me? Like, I laid this before you. I gave the... <laughs> what are we not doing in that moment? And this killed me when I really realized this. I don't trust him. It's as simple as that. Don't try to make up other excuses or... You don't trust him. You don't believe he's Romans 11, Colossians 1, Psalm 11:5. You don't believe he's that. You don't believe he really has got it all under control. You don't. I was thinking about this uh, illustration. OK, you remember when you were I remember when I was doing group projects uh, in school, and you know when you had to like delegate responsibilities? And you, you know when there was always that person in your group and you're like, I just don't want to give it to him, right? You know what I mean? You're like, he's just, he's going to show up late, he's going to have half of it done, it's not going to be good. You know what I'm talking about? Right? So, so I remember doing these, these projects and, and we delegate stuff and there was always someone who was reliable and someone who was unreliable, right? Well, the reason you have total confidence in someone is because you believe they're reliable. They're going to follow through, right? You trust what they're going to do. So you give that piece of the, whatever it is, project to them, and you don't worry or you worry incessantly about how it's all going to come together, right? So I remember there was this this one girl, Kim. She was like A++. She had like a 4.4. I didn't even know that was like possible. I guess she had multiple like uh, AP classes that got her extra whatever it was. Clearly, I am, okay. So so, she, so so she's there, and I'm going, man, okay. And I'm thinking through, and, and I remember AP government, I'm gonna give Kim this piece of this project and presentation, because she's gonna nail it. I mean, I know I can give her this and say, hey, here, take this, and she's gonna come back in two weeks, I won't have to call her, I won't have to check in on her, she'll be golden, right? Okay, Jimmy, this guy, I mean, God bless him, and if he's listening. I love you, Jimmy, right? But you're 30 now, so you gotta. I'm sure he's on his way somewhere, right? So, But Jimmy, listen, Jimmy just, and he was honest about it. I mean, the guy, just, just forgetful as they get. I mean, you literally hand him the project, and before he even exits the classroom, it's like on the floor, or he left it on his desk. Or, you know what I mean? I'm going, God put me with this group of people. How could it be so, it couldn't be more polar opposites. And, and as, as funny as it is, I was, I was thinking about this with prayer, and, and he says, present your request to me, right? Man, we treat God like Jimmy all the time. Seriously. We think he's totally incapable. And, and, and really, it's just a mock at his character. We, we keep checking in. We don't really pray, hand the request, okay, you got it, you got it you're gonna come through. I don't know how, I don't know what that's gonna look like. I'm gonna rejoice because because of who you're rejoicing in, because of who you're giving the request to. Like, that's what gives you the peace. Like, it's not even about the answer of it. Because because here's the thing, our confidence usually is in our finite asking and not in his sovereign answering, okay? You track it with that? Like, it's usually our confidence is in, okay, well, how do I present the request, or what do I say, or how do I do some things so he'll listen to me more, and not in resting in his sovereign rule and reign that he's returning, the Lord is at hand, he's in charge of it all, and he's going to answer. Like, what are you giving thanks in? And he's saying, man, man, I want my kids to just give me a request and then trust me with it. I got it. I got it. I'm taking care of it. And and here's what he says happens. I want to read a quote before I show you what he says the effect of this is. I wrote a quote by J.A. Bengel this week. Not on the screen, but this is what it says. Anxiety and prayer are more opposed to each other than water and fire. Anxiety and prayer are more opposed to each other than water and fire. In other words, the only solution and hope in your deepest, most anxious place is prayer and petition to the one who sovereignly rules and reigns over it. Just like water puts out a fire. It distinguishes it. And here, here's what's amazing. God says this. When you pray, you're going to kindle joy, kill anxiety, right, because you're remembering the Lord's at hand. Remembering that he's returning, that Christ is coming, he's gonna make it all right. You're thinking about him in all his glory with all his angels. He's gonna do it all, make make the whole world, everything, no more sin, no more evil, no more pain, no more stress, no more anxiety, right? That's coming. That day's coming. So this stress and anxiety is preparing me for the day where it won't be anymore. And also he's sovereignly in control of it all. He says, My peace is available to you. He says, then the peace of God, which surpasses understanding, right? You can't find peace anywhere else. You can band-aid piece you can go watch a movie or think about something different or it'll always come back the anxiety will always seep back in it'll always creep back in he goes that piece of God which surpasses understanding is going to guard your heart and your mind like someone standing in front of a a a a huge just facility and no one's going in no one's going into your mind nothing's going to trickle in there it's going to guard your mind And your heart in Christ Jesus. He says, now this is awesome. The peace of what guards you? God. This all goes back to his sovereign rule and reign. How much peace does God have right now? Endless. Endless peace. Why? Because of one word. Control. He's never waking up confused. There's not a minute that goes by where he goes, I missed that. I wasn't there in that spot. James says, our life is a vapor standing against the always infinite God. A mist. You know like when you're outside and it's cold and you breathe? And it's just, you just see it real quick, right? That's your life. Compared to The always existing, outside of time, sovereign ruling and reigning God. Like, let's keep putting our ourselves in the proper place. This is why the root of sin is idolatry. We think we can be God, run the world, run the universe the way that we think it should be done. He's going, seriously? I made your brain to even think that way. Like the ability to even think, I made that. Right? The time that you're in, I made that. And it's amazing. He says that this peace. Of God, I mean, just imagine the peace of God because he's in full control, full reign. He's never surprised about anything and he can make anything happen. What peace he must have. And he says, when you press into me through prayer, remembering who I am and the object of who you're rejoicing in and the one who's actually receiving your prayer, of course, you can say, help me. Supplication. Where else am I going to go for help but to you? And then I'm going to give thanksgiving because I know you've got it. And I'm handing it to you and I'm letting go and I'm not going to check in or or wonder or I can trust you in it. You're sovereign in it. You're good in it. Okay, and I'm going to walk forward. And then that peace guards our heart. That's the peace you can have. And hear me. This is the peace God wants you to have. Like, He's not a cosmic killjoy. Like, He actually, again, His command is to what? Not take from you, but give to you. Like, He wants you to be someone who's not living in anxiety. Like, He doesn't want you to be someone who's not rejoicing. He doesn't want, I mean, He actually is for your peace, He's for your joy. He's going, hey, I'm right here, I'm right here, man. Just give me the request, I'll take it. Dad's good, dad's got, he's never missed a bill. He's never missed picking you up from one sporting event. He's never messed up in one single thing in life. He's never been the ambulance driver. He's never showed up late. He is the surgeon involved, always active, always being God. Drive your heart there. Don't just read a churchy verse and say, okay, well, no, no remember, I mean, literally bring to thought the God that has always been, who you're talking to and laying that before. Say, God, I trust you. You can take this. Here's what's amazing. I mean, you'll see throughout the scriptures, he actually wants you to keep bothering him. Like, just keep bringing him. Like, he doesn't grow grow weary in it. You think when there's a billion people in the world, right, then you got his church. I mean, how many millions of people who are constantly bringing petitions? You'd think that he would, that's not him. He's not weak. There's not an ounce of weariness in him. He's utterly strong. He sustains all requests, all prayers. Now, just to encourage us, we're going to take a sneak peek at next week. Jump down to verse 9, not on the screen, because just, just, this is going to be important for us to see as we, as we end here. What does he say in verse 9? What you have learned and received and heard from me, do what? Practice. Practice these things. Verse 9. What does that mean? None of what we just talked about is natural. It takes practice. Like all these, Paul's going, man, all these things you've learned from me about how to present requests, about how to rejoice in all things, about how to walk in godliness, how to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, how to strive together side by side. Okay, all these things you've learned and heard from me, hey, you got to practice them. And and I'm going to keep Saying this because I don't want us to miss it because Paul's going to keep saying it, okay? If you think that you can just walk into church and hear some truths and, and kind of, okay, that's going to fill me for the week. I'm magically going to change and wake up the next morning and be really just laying petitions before God and not worrying and I'm never anxious. I'm rejoicing in deep sorrow. If you think that's just going to happen, you're, you're, you're missing it. You're living a mode of Christianity that is never in the Bible, where passive Christianity is non existent. Okay, where you just pray, accept God's grace and his forgiveness, and then just wander about your way and expect, you know, just metamorphosis to happen, and just, you know, I don't know, stuff just magically appears. No, you gotta labor and practice these things to grow in maturity. So you're growing in Christ's likeness, you're looking more like Jesus, you experiencing the depths of Him, you knowing more of His holiness and His sovereignty is instricably connected to you doing and walking and practicing what you already know. No, like you have to take these things and then then walk in it. Don't just let them be intellectual ideas. Like don't just let them be just just like Jordan was talking about. Like like what does that actually look like for you? I said last week, what's your grace-filled plan? What's your plan? Or are we just going to keep this cycle every week where we come in, hear truths, sounds awesome. I'm going to let magic do its work. Put the Bible away and just. Not reflect on it, not consider it, not press into it, not ask ourselves the hard questions of God, how how do I do this? So, so natural is not to rejoice in all things. Natural is not to lay your anxieties down. Natural is, I want to control it, carry it, think about it more, lay in bed all night, restless. That's natural. It is. Natural is, that person betrayed me. How dare they, right? That's natural. And he says, no, I want you to cultivate and practice these things. There has to be a practice of, (sighs) I'm going to trust you in this. I'm going to remember your character in this moment. I'm going to walk in that. I'm I'm, I'm, going to actually consider my citizenship being in heaven in this moment. I'm going to actively hand my request to you. I'm going to remember that my name is written in the book of life. It's a God, help me, God. What is it? We learned two weeks ago, straining, striving, pressing, right? Always forward moving into the God that is and always has been. Let's ask him to help us in this. God, thank you that you're a God who listens, that a God is for our joy, who a God is for our peace, a God who is for us not walking around feeling like our our Father in Heaven is out of control or missing spots or lacking in effort or strength. God, forgive us for treating you as the person in our classroom who we don't trust at all. God, help us to practice these things. Help us to walk in these things. God, I know that this is not easy I'm so thankful for this encouragement, verse 9, that it takes practice. Because I know that, God, as you supply and through the empowerment of your Holy Spirit, you enable grace, sustaining grace. You enable these things to bear fruit in our lives as we press into you. God, help us to be men and women who practice the things that we already know. Not just looking for new revelation or new ideas or new cute phrases, but God, who just, just walking what you've already revealed who do the things that are plain before us. God, we admit that we're weak. We admit that we're finite. We admit that we do not consider you God often. We admit that we want to control our lives. We admit that we're self-centered and we're self-absorbed. God, open our horizons, expand our view. God, I pray as we observe the Lord's Supper this morning that we would remember Jesus, the reigner and ruler of all things, who came and broke his body and shed his blood to rescue and ransom us to himself, not to leave us as orphans, but you said to return again. and Take us home. And God, while you're here, you you offer and give and supply the strength and the peace and the stamina to to strive and strain and press forward. Help us to do that by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.